Um, so thank you for the opportunity. It is a great privilege and honor to share uh, the work that we do at my work. For those of you who don't know, um, I am a counseling supervisor at a medically assisted treatment facility, which means that we work with substance abuse, particularly opioids, which is the big crisis that's going on right now. And we see wonderful things going on there. Uh, this morning, Sloan Book, who is my fellow worker and good friend and very nervous. You're going to have to welcome her a lot. She's never done this before. She's going to come share. Come on up, Sloan. Um, yes, there you go. She's going to share her story in recovery, and then I'm going to speak, and then we're going to have a question and answer time. And Sloan is also staying for the potluck. And I specifically asked her to do that so that if anybody had questions, you could talk to her. Because if anybody understands the process, she does. She's really good. So I am going to let you speak first. Okay. Come on up. And I told her I would interrupt her because I know that she'll get nervous and leave some things out. So if you see me interrupting, because I know her story. Yeah, yeah. So like Tim said, my name is Sloan Book. Um, yep, just a little I'm 32. Please. I'm in recovery um, for opioid, opioids and several other things, just drugs in general. Um, my addiction itself started, like a lot of other people at our clinic, just addicts in general, in high school, um, just being young, dumb, thinking I was invincible. Um, after high school, I moved to Canada for university. Um, I didn't do very well in school because I was more concerned with partying and destroying my life. Um, eventually, I moved back to Florida to live with my mom, but when I came back to the States, I didn't have citizenship, so I couldn't get a job right away um, because, if anybody knows, INS is very hard. To <laughs> they make things very difficult. So I was really bored. Um, I ended up hanging out with the wrong crowd, um, especially in Florida. The opioid epidemic is pretty serious out there, too. So um, I started using heroin um, around the time I was 20, 21. Um, I'd gotten my tonsils removed um, when I was 20, and I was prescribed an enormous amount of Vicodin. And they kept giving me refills, and it just one thing kind of led to another. Um, I ended up buying opioids up the street that was really expensive, and then eventually I fell into heroin. Um, I didn't start using intravenously right away because I was afraid of it. Um, then one night, uh, my boyfriend at the time just described it as this amazing experience that is, you know, greater than God. It was like, so I naively did it, and... I was stupid. Um, I didn't really understand what I was doing. I didn't even know I was addicted to drugs until I woke up one morning and thought I had the worst flu of my life. Um, it wasn't until he told me that I was dope sick and the only cure was more dope. So it became this like vicious cycle. Um, but from then it was just a downward spiral of just bad choices. Um, I ended up homeless. I was floating from couch to couch, staying at motels when I could come up with money. Eventually I got arrested. I spent some time in jail. Um, I'm gonna turn the page here. Um, and then 
after I got released from jail, I ended up getting arrested again, but this time it was for sale of drugs, so I spent time in prison. Um, when I was released from prison, I didn't have any idea what I was supposed to do with my life, where I was supposed to go, how I was supposed to get better, because <laughs> when you're in jail, they don't... <laughs> um, go ahead, you're fine. Sorry. <laughs> but um, when I was in prison, they didn't have, like, any kind of substance abuse, like, treatment or anything like that. So when I got out, it wasn't, like, I was cured. I was, I mean, I worked laundry in prison. I work out my... I'm really sorry. <laughs> this is You're why fine. I don't uh, talk about this. I'm about three seconds behind you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so when I got out, I uh, had no guidance. Um, now I was a convicted felon. So not only was I a drug addict, but I was a convicted felon, which is more stigma attached to me. So um, I did the only thing I really knew how to do. And I was going back to the same people that I hung out with before. Um, but this time my addiction was way worse. Um, I ended up overdosing in a hotel bathroom. Um, I got really lucky because somebody there had Narcan and I recovered. I didn't die. Can I interrupt? Yeah. Tell them what Narcan is. Um, so Narcan is a like a spray. a spray for your nose. Like it goes up your nose and it basically takes you out of your overdose. I don't really actually know the science behind it. It puts you in immediate withdrawal. Yeah, it puts you in immediate withdrawal, but it only works on opiates, nothing else. Um, but um, there's a lot of controversy behind Narcan, too, just because it's so readily available to addicts. But um, anyways, um, so... When I after that happened, I was scared. Um, still, I I felt terrible. Um, I was starting to kind of realize that there was no, I wasn't going to get better in Florida. So I had a friend that lived in Colorado. Um, I phoned him kind of on a whim. Um, he said, "I'll buy you a one-way ticket. You can either get on the plane or you can stay there and die or go back to prison." Um, so I found some way to get on the plane. Um, I ended up in Colorado. Um, honestly, I have no idea how I even got to the airport or how I ended up here. It was just, I was here. Um, I ended up detoxing alone in a basement. Um, it was painful. It was terrifying. I wanted to give up. I wanted to go back to Florida. Um, I didn't think I was going to make it. It was incredibly unsafe, what I did. Um, Can I interrupt? Yes. Describe for them what it's like. To detox? On your own. Um, it's horrifying. Um, not having any support, nobody to walk you through what you're doing. Um, you're sick. You, you, you don't really have um, a lot of um, feel to kind of like... I don't want to say cheer you on, but like telling you that what you're doing, you're gonna you're gonna be okay. Like, I just 
Can I interrupt here? Yes. You won't die from um, withdrawal from her from opioids, but you want to. Yeah. You won't die, but you want to, because it feels so painful. Um. So uh, once I made it through the detox, though, um, the physical detox took about a week. Um, mentally, it took me about three months to get my brain in a better place. Um, but I haven't looked back. I'll have seven years clean January 17th, uh, 2022. Um, I'm really sorry that I keep crying. <laughs> don't be. I'm not a crier, um, but I just don't really like thinking about the past too much. But um, I came here with half a suitcase worth of clothes, all of which were torn, shredded. I mean, I was homeless when I came. So now I have an apartment that I've lived in for four years. I've never been late on my rent. I have furniture. I have two closets full of clothes. I have a car that I've never been late on that payment. I have an amazing five-year-old son. Um, I have an incredible group of friends, and I have an amazing job that Tim gave me on a whim, um, which I, I was didn't like I didn't really still have a lot of I still had a lot of self-doubt in myself even when I started working with Tim um didn't think he would even hire me kind of thought he would look at me like why are you in my office um but he didn't which was pretty great so thanks but yeah that's pretty much it stay here um, I know. <laughs> poorly. Poorly. Um, don't go away. I want, I want them to hear you. Um, at the worst of it, what caused you to change your life? Um, I don't really know, honestly. When I think back to it, it was when I phoned my friend that lived here. It was I was scared. I didn't want to do what I was doing anymore. It wasn't working. Um, I mean, when I was in high school, I was in AP honors classes. I had a future, and I destroyed it. Um, and I didn't think I would ever make it out or do anything with my life. Um, and I didn't want that to be the case. So I made a call, and that was the best decision I've ever made next to having my son. So. Okay. And you're in school right now? I'm in school full-time for social work or okay. psychology. We're undecided. We keep changing. That's all right. <laughs> and you want to work in the addiction field? Correct. Which is really great. When you were at the bottom, how high was your, and this is a loaded term for a lot of people, how high was your self-esteem? I didn't have one. I, it was non-existent. I looked at myself. I hated myself. I hated everything about who I was and what I stood for and where I was going. Okay. Does spirituality play any part in your recovery? It did, to some extent. Um, when I first, when I was living in Florida, I went to a small church that was like this. Um, they tried to help me. I was unhelpable at that point. Uh, when I came to Colorado, I started going to um, Southeastern Christian, um, but it was 
hard. The congregation was hard. It was huge. So then I switched to Red Rocks, which was even bigger. But I did start going to Celebrate Recovery, um, which is a faith-based program. It's similar to NA, but it's much more faith-based than NA is. Um, and it was very helpful. Um, it did offer a lot of guidance to have a higher power to, I mean, something that's bigger than me to believe in, because just believing in yourself is not that helpful in recovery. (laughs) So when I interviewed her for the job, she was telling me all this story, and I was asking her lots of questions and about her ability to work with people who were in recovery, and I saw a diamond in the rough. Tremendous potential for helping people because she'd been through it. She knew the system. She knows what works, etc., etc. And since you should see the clients flock to her, they love her. It's like amazing because she's so incredibly honest and open. It's like wonderful. You're still in process, yes. as we all are. Very much so. Very much so. So we're going to have a question time when I'm done talking because I'm going to give a little bit of background about what treatment is and how it helps people and where in the world does God fit in here. I mean, that's really a question. So, again, give her a hand. Um, I've got a slide. I put this slide up just because I didn't have anything else. (laughs) The next one is the Bible because we're living in an age when a lot of people think okay, for spirituality, the Bible's cool, but for real problems, you have to go to either a psychologist, a psychiatrist, or someone else who can really fix your problems because the Bible really doesn't have the answers for all the psychological needs. And I believe that's absolutely wrong. The Bible has had the right answers for a long time, but we don't always know how to process them. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the processes. The next slide, if I could, is about a person in pain. And tell me if I'm wrong here. 99.99% of the people who come to us, and we have almost 800 clients in our center. We're the largest in Colorado. We're huge. Um, We have like 17 counselors, um, tremendous staff, most of whom are believers, frankly, because believers have this heart for reaching people. They really do. Almost everybody who comes to us comes to us in pain. It's either physical pain because they were in a car wreck, They had an accident, something. The doctor put them on all sorts of opioids and then cut them off and they were addicted and then they went to the street to find heroin or oxycodone, which is incredibly expensive, or Percocet, whatever, you name it. But they come to us because they have spent literally sometimes 40,000 bucks a year trying to stay feeling okay. And many of them have lost everything, including their family, and they can't quit because just quitting is the most painful experience. Uh, They tell me, I've never gone through it, and you'll have to testify, they tell me it's kind of like the flu about a hundred times worse. They say the pain is so bad that every bone in your body hurts, everything is screaming out, you you can't do this, get some relief. Um, There's a real simple physical explanation for that. Your body has natural... Painkillers, the main one is called enkephalin. And when you start using opioids, your body stops producing the natural painkiller. And then when you take off the opioids, your body has no resource to deal with pain. 
and you experience pain that is just unbelievable um, because your brain doesn't know the difference. It just knows you are suffering. That's it. So everybody who comes to us comes in pain. Many of the people who come to us, um, and we have everybody. We have people who are older, younger, accidents, people who started in high school. The younger you are, the harder it is to quit when you, when you started. And the reason for that is, is brain development because um, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that really does the ability to say, I don't really want to do this, doesn't really start developing well until you're about 11 years old. So when you're in junior high, you're not the most mature person you're ever going to be. And if you start using stuff, <coughs> you know, when you start using things in middle school or high school, you do not have the resources mentally to handle all the things that are going on. And so when you come out, when you get into recovery, you're pretty much that age in recovery. You are a person who's like middle high school age person with a brain of a middle or high school age trying to deal with this enormous pain and enormous struggle. Uh, Sloan has shown tremendous courage. Oh, sheesh. To fight through it on your own in a basement? I don't know how you did that. And you're going to learn why support is so important and why we need to support people who are trying to uh, get off of things. Everybody has, everybody has something that they use as a way to cope with stress or angst. Angst is the German word for this emptiness that humans feel. We all feel it. Uh, some people do drugs and alcohol. Some people do cigarettes, marijuana, video, sex, porn, gambling, romance novels, video gaming, drugs, shopping, fantasy football, food, music, you name it. People escape. People escape. That's what they're doing from reality. And lots of people have lots of escapes. Where do you go to when you're feeling empty? That's what it is. So it isn't like we, do, we can't relate to it. We all can because we all know that emptiness. In Psalm 6, if you'd like to turn there with me, Psalm 6. I'm a huge believer in the healing nature of the Psalms. I don't know if you've ever noticed how troubled the psalmist is at times. Um, and how angry the psalmist can be, how frustrated with God the psalmist can be. Because in the Old Testament literature, the Hebrews had this method of being completely honest with God no matter how you felt, angry or not, depressed or not, disappointed or not. And it's crucially important to get those honest feelings out and dealt with. Because when you suppress those honest feelings, they only come back to haunt you. That's it. In Psalm 6, verse 3, I'm starting in the middle just because of time this morning. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. If you can ever relate to that. Because there are times in our lives where the pain gets so deep that the honest cry to God is really important. Now, I believe this has created a deep dilemma in the understanding of Scripture because even among believers, people misunderstand, misunderstand the self. Who am I as a person? And they think that coming to Christ means needing to deny myself. Um, when I was young, I remember hearing the statement, 
many times that people said, the way to be happy is joy, Jesus, others, you. Anybody else ever hear that? You never heard that? Seriously? Oh, okay. (laughs) They always said, Jesus, other you, which meant you're not supposed to think about yourself. And self is wrong. So when Jesus talks about self-denial or taking up your cross and following him, people often think, well, I'm not supposed to think about myself. I'm supposed to think about others always because that's what Jesus really wants from me. I think that's a misunderstanding of Scripture. Because if that were true, why would anybody want salvation? Because that's about yourself. That's about your own healing. The issue he's talking about is answered in a word in the Greek that we don't have in the English. And it's the word sarks. Um, and it, whenever you read in the scripture where it talks about the flesh, or, and it's translated different ways in different translations, but it's referring not to your emotions. It's referring to the self-centered, impulsive self. The self-centered autonomous, I don't need anybody but me, I'm sufficient, who needs God? That's the sarks. That's what Jesus is asking us to deny, is that self-centeredness, the autonomous being, not the emotional being, because your emotions are really healthy. When it talks in the scripture about loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, it's talking about a balance between your intellect, your emotions, your body, and being a balanced person. And emotions are kind of like the dashboard on your car. When a red light comes on, you want to pay attention to it because it's telling you something. Something is wrong and you need to fix it. To deny it and suppress those emotions is to deny your own place in the universe and your relationship with God. And Lord, what do I need to do here to get this fixed? What do I need to do to get this fixed? And Because emotions are given to us as a part of your hardwiring you might say, um, because your central nervous system is your brain. Your whole body is your brain. Your brain isn't just here. It's also here. There's even what we call polyvagal theory, because you have a major nerve that runs right from your brain to your gut. So when you get upset, guess what hurts? And when you get depressed, why do you feel like an elephant is sitting on your chest? It's because your whole body is you and your experience is really important to get it out and process it and figure out what's going on in your life. Um, I've got a picture here. Next one. Oops. Is there one of the brain there? That one. This is a picture of the brain. I'm going to really simplify this. Okay. But in the center part of the brain right there is the what is called the limbic system. And the limbic system is kind of the pleasure center of the brain. This is what develops first. Babies are born with it. That's why they cry at everything. Right? Babies can't reason. That's why my daughter is an elementary school teacher. And she says, you know, you just can't reason with these kids. You just got to lay down the law because they don't have brain development enough that you can sit and reason with them. You just say, here are the rules. What's interesting is, when you read the Old Testament, that's almost what you see with Moses and the people of the Old Testament coming out of slavery. Because they were so basic, they just had to lay down the law because they couldn't reason through it. Whereas with Christ in the New Testament, you see this fantastic reasoning of somebody who really got it. Got it? He was it. Right? And explained it to us so we can figure out, okay, why is this so important? So the pleasure center of the brain 
produces, and it's the first thing to always react to everything. It says, go, do it, feel better. Go, do it, feel better. And guess what drugs and all of our escapes do for us? They make us temporarily feel better. That's what they do. Your body and your brain, when you eat food, produces what they call about 100 nanonomes of release of dopamine. About 100. When you have sex, it's about 150 to 200. So it's really a powerful release of pleasure neurons, of neurotransmitters. When you do meth, it's 1,000 to 1,200. Do you wonder why people do meth? And if you get a person who comes from a traumatic background where they were abused in their childhood and they've got all this confusion and pain going on and the only way they find relief is a drug, it feels wonderful. And that's what we're dealing with. So getting that change, and the other part about it is is when you stop doing, when you use it for a long enough period of time, your body stops producing the natural dopamine again. And if you quit, like meth or any one of the stimulants, your body goes into what is called anhedonia. And that means there's zero happiness for you. You are going to be depressed for probably two years. Do you know how hard it is to live depressed for two years? So quitting drugs takes an incredible amount of courage for people and an incredible commitment to go, i got to get through this, and this is really painfully hard to do it. There is a way to do it. The Bible gives the answer. The Bible gives the answer to psychological health, quite frankly. And it is found in the... Uh, let's go to the next slide. Well, I already did the... Yeah, I did the SARS. That's a general and negative thing. Go to the next one if you could. I think I have the next one. Oh, I didn't put it up. It's the conscience. The conscience is the answer. Because it comes from the Latin word con, which means with, and science, knowledge. <coughs> conscience. With knowledge. Because the conscience is aware of things, and it has the ability to think through decision-making there are some scriptures that are crucial here that are really important. 1 Peter 3.21, if you turn there with me. 1 Peter 3.21. God's method of healing us is through the conscience. But people have a tendency to recognize the conscience is very demanding and say... Most of the time when people are watching, I'll do it. But when they're not watching, I won't always do it. So this verse is crucial to psychological healing. 1 Peter 3.21 And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Everybody's conscience is shaped by the most influential persons in their life. If I'm a part of a gang, my conscience is directed toward the people in the gang. So I've had clients who tell me who have been gang members, blood in, blood out, I will never deny the gang because it's blood in and blood out. And if I deny them, my life's in danger. I will never deny that. That's Their conscience is responsible to those people. 
Your conscience being responsible and open to God means that you're keeping the communication with God open so that you will always deal with your problems with someone who loves you immeasurably. Did you get why that's so important? Because when you're open to the only person who will never give up on you, the only person who sees who you are beyond your behavior and wants to heal you, there is nothing that heals the soul like that. And that's why these verses are so, so important. Because there is a Holy Spirit who works. So Sloan said she didn't know why she wanted to get better. So I'm a big believer in what is called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace means God is calling people to himself even when they don't realize it. Even when they don't realize it. One day the lights come on, like they did for Paul. You're going to see that in a minute. Um, and they see it. In 1 Corinthians 4.3, if you turn there with me. 1 Corinthians 4.3. It says there, and this is Paul speaking, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. And what he means by that is he's not a major critic of himself. Because when you you are a major critic of yourself, you get into self-hatred, which is totally unproductive. It doesn't help you change a bit. He goes on, My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. Now, there's a really strange statement. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. What in the world could Paul be thinking about? Do you wonder that? Well, it's pretty easy when you read the book of Acts because Paul was persecuting the church. And he was there approving of Stephen getting stoned because in the Old Testament, if a person is leading somebody away from God, the command was stone them. And Paul was doing what he believed God wanted him to do. His conscience was clear in wanting to stone Stephen. And he even says that later in another verse. In 1 Timothy 1, you can turn there. 1 Timothy 1, we'll read from there in just a second. Jesus reached Paul and said, Paul, what are you doing? What are you doing? Now, all of us, if we live with a clear conscience, we'll discover things in our life that, oops, I was wrong. I need to change my view. Oops, I thought this, but now that I'm reading this in the scripture, I realize I need to change the way I see things. That means that we are in a process of sanctification or growth, and we all go through it. And the only way to go through it correctly is to have a clear conscience that when you're wrong, you say, God, forgive me, I was wrong. I'm going to change the way I think now and go a different way. And in so doing, we become more and more and more like Christ. And we get the mind of Christ, as Paul would say it. But only if we are committed to having a clear conscience. It's amazing. So I have a statement here. Conscience is connection. Conscience is connection. And it's connection with other people and it's connection with God. Because when you're on drugs or any form of escapism where you withdraw from the world, and I'll ask Sloan this. Sloan, when you were totally on drugs, did anybody matter except yourself? Nope. 
because the only thing that matters is I don't want to be sick so I will do anything to get money for drugs I will do anything because the pain of the sickness is so bad so you go from a place of being totally alone in the world to connection with others and connection with God so conscience is connection because it's connecting with the bigger universe so I ha- here repeat these after me as I say them conscience is Conscience is connection. The proof of your election. Giving you direction. Increasing your affection. In other words, you become more loving. Isn't that what Jesus is really about? That we are becoming more loving as we grow in Christ because we see the world the way He sees it and we become that way. We're going to do that one more time. Conscience is connection. The proof of your election, giving you direction, and increasing your affection. This is God's method for mental health. No kidding. It is God's method for mental health. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. We're going to go there first. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It says, the goal of this command is love which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And good conscience does not mean that you're perfect. Good conscience means you're honest with yourself and with God. That's really what it means. So that when you do make a mistake, you admit it, you make a change, that kind of thing. In verse 12 of the same chapter, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of the Lord is poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Powerful testimony of Paul. Because what he's saying is, I was ignorant, I was blind, and God opened my eyes and I saw the world differently through Christ and it changed me. Wow. Powerful stuff. One more slide. This is on mental health. Is there one more? There you go. This is out of a... Uh, I believe a dictionary that I got it out of, but it's a description of mental health. Good mental health is characterized by a person's ability to fulfill a number of key functions and activities, including the ability to learn, the ability to feel, express and manage a range of positive and negative emotions, the ability to form and maintain good relationships with others, the ability to cope with and manage change and uncertainty. I don't know how many of you are aware that uh, Freud, the founder of modern psychology, was a cocaine addict and also a nicotine addict. He smoked so many cigars that he had six different surgeries on his mouth. They finally had to replace the roof of his mouth and he had his doctor euthanize him at the end because he couldn't stand it. I don't think that psychology has anything on scripture or God because when you, when you listen to the psychological world today, they'll often talk about, are you feeling anxious? 
Are you feeling depressed? When was the last time you heard him talk about the conscience? Because the conscience is a spiritual concept where you relate to God openly and honestly. And you find the healing that God alone can provide in the security that he provides for our soul. That's who he is. And that's why it is so important. Charlene, not Charlene, Sloan, come on up. One more time. Charlene's later. Charlene's later. I have, while she's on her way up, I had a person recently that I was doing an intake with. Um, He and his wife were both there. Oh, an intake. (laughs) is where they come to us, where we do like a three-hour assessment. Um, It's really a long process. Uh, biopsychosocial assessment on the person, their whole background and all that stuff. And his wife was saying, I don't see why he just can't quit. And I said, well, let's listen to this background. Tell me your background. He did. He was in Iraq. He was a dog handler. He had six different dogs. What do you think he probably saw as a dog handler? How many of his dogs were killed? How many people were killed? And this guy's living with this pain in his head And what's the only thing that got him any relief? I said, so if he's got these thoughts running in his head and he can't sleep and he can't find any peace, do you start to understand why he just can't quit? Why he needs help? And she was like, okay. Maybe this makes sense. Let's do this. In Christ, there is an answer. But it's not a quick fix. It takes time. And it takes a lot of mental processing and a lot of growth for people to get to the place where they really experience peace on their own. But I believe Christ is in the work of doing this because I can't tell you how many of my clients come to faith. It's a slow process. I admit it. It's not present the gospel once and they're in. It's a slow process of them learning to trust anyone again. Questions? We have a few minutes. Real quick, uh, Tim, I think, maybe I shouldn't speak for, for everyone, but I think historically in the church, probably we have this notion that... Speak nice and loud so they can hear you back there. Yeah, I've had a problem with that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, guys. It, it seems to me that sometimes, and maybe maybe we're not as naive as I think we are sometimes, but I think sometimes in the church especially, we have this notion that, that drug addiction is something that's out there, you know. It, it, it's in a world that, that, that we don't even intersect with. And I think I think hopefully we've been disabused of that. So my question is, what are the demographics? I mean, what uh, what kind uh, you know, uh, of people who are addicted, what, what are the demographics? Because, again, we think of Colfax. Mm-hmm. That's, we instantly think, probably think of Colfax. And, I, and that's certainly true, but... Maybe I'm going to let her. I'm going to let her talk the, to that. The demographics of people who are using. using. Go, go to the mic if you wish. <laughs> the reality is that it's anybody, everybody. Um, it doesn't take much. I'm, some people can use once and never touch it again. And other people they use once and they're on it forever. I know people that I used to use with. They were of all demographics. It didn't like. Addiction doesn't have, like, it doesn't discriminate, I guess it's the saying. But, I mean, even within our clinic, there's people from all walks of life, from suburbs. all uh, suburbs. I, I mean, Doctors, all. Doctors, lawyers. Yep. 
people that were super wealthy and had their lives together and doing something to stay awake and then one thing like to another and they lose everything it doesn't have like it doesn't and you'd be surprised because it's probably people you know mm-hmm. it's really easy to hide for a long time so I don't know if that answers so I know Sure. I love how you, you know, point back to the Lord, but there's a lot of training that goes into and understanding. There is. You have to, um, for what I do, you have to have a master's degree in counseling, and you also have to have what is called an LAC or licensed addiction counselor, which is a bunch of classes basically <coughs> that you have to take in training, and you have to have uh, 3,000 hours of supervision, <coughs> individual supervision plus. I can't remember, 100 hours of group supervision. So there's a lot of training involved in doing it. Um, the master's degree, you can get anywhere. You can get it at DU, CU, you can get it at Denver, you can get it anywhere. The LAC is through a variety of agencies. You can just look it up online. There are different groups that offer these classes um, that you take. Right now, because of COVID, most of them are online. Prior to COVID, they weren't. But yeah, and it's it's a fair amount of training. Yes. So, what percentage of your clients maybe you know was as a result of a, a rough childhood, maybe you know whether parents and that or whatever I don't know, and or most of them was it mostly older people that you know in high school they got into drugs or pain trying to explain, or was is there some just do you want to answer that? Or do you want me to answer that? You should answer it. Because well, I mean, tra- the, yeah. trauma. the trauma. Everybody has had trauma. I understand that. Yeah. In terms of physical, um, I have, for example, a grandmother that was my client who um, had surgeries and the doctor just got her hooked. And she's 70 years old. And her kids say, Mom, why don't you just don't quit? Why don't you just quit? And they don't understand. She's 72. Really? I mean, you know. Um, I don't think there's a percentage, but everybody has trauma. Everybody. And we call it dual diagnosis because what's really causing the use, that's what we want to get to. So all your clients, really they had some kind of trauma, but their solution was some form of drugs, opioids, uh, or whatever. Um, for the ones with physical injuries, the doctor usually puts them on. In, as of a couple of years ago, before everybody started working harder on opioids, um, people with prescriptions were overdosing more than people getting heroin on the street. There were so many overdoses, prescription overdoses. Um, in terms of young people, most of them who, let me give you an example. One of the ladies that I work with, she works with her too, the same lady. Um, can't mention her name. <laughs> we can say the story. She ran away from home when she was 12 years old because she was being forced to live with her father who was sexually sexually abusing her. And she got on the street and started using. Well, that's trauma. And that's a trauma that's just unbelievable. you know. So we have a number of people like that who have terrible backgrounds. There is an evil out there. There are truly evil people who harm their own children 
terribly. And that is so hard to cure. Oh, it takes so long. So when you mentioned that about you didn't, maybe you don't even realize it for someone is addicted, what, what are some of the signs that you maybe should, I'm thinking of parents or grandparents, just, you know, people, what, what kinds of things should we be looking for? Maybe to get hints that something else is going on. Um, I mean, you, some of the biggest things are like, um, oh, whoa, whoa. sorry, that's okay. sorry. That's me. Um, just I'm, like they're losing money. They they don't they don't can't tell you where their money's going. You're losing stuff. that's going missing. Um, another big tell is they're spending a lot of time in the bathroom. That's how my mom figured it out. Um, that and. Um, another big in- indicator is just your behavior. Behavior changes drastically the further somebody progresses into addiction. Um, you disconnect with the people. Yeah, and you don't become angry every time somebody tries to question you, um, and your emotions are just kind of out of control. Um, for stimulants, a big a big one is you notice a lot of like scratching and picking and facial features start to change. Um, but do you know do you know what she means? She says scratching and picking. Sorry, yeah. You better explain scratching and picking. Um. So a lot of stimulants. Uh, I I don't know how true this part of it is, but like meth and things like that, you have this like fixation on something on your body, and then you start to pick at it uncontrollably and then that's how they end up with sores all over them often on the face yeah um, they'll sit in front of the mirror for hours like a spider or something's on there and then they pick and they get mm-hmm. sores scars so um, a lot of those I mean that doesn't happen for like the sores and stuff you wouldn't notice right away but um, I think behavior and things like that are, are the biggest indicators as well as like a loss of money like a lot a lot of money. Yeah. Any other questions? I oh, well, one more. What is your process when you see somebody um, I would encourage a treatment center, especially with opioids, because it's a long-term process. It isn't cured overnight, and usually it's a psychological process as well as a physiological process. Um, I would send them to a treatment center, but I would be careful about which treatment center I send them to. You'd really want to find out um, if it's a good treatment center where they care for people or if they're just running a business, if that makes sense. One of the things I do in hiring is I tell my potential people, there's two qualities I look for. Um, One is you've got to be compassionate about your work. Number one, um, what was the other one I told you? Was it honesty? <laughs> I think it was honesty. Compassion and honesty. Honesty. You got to be honest and you got to be compassionate. And if you do those two things, you'll be great with our clients. Yeah. Go ahead. What is the protocol in terms of, uh, you know, physical treatment or you know, like you're talking, you're talking about methadone? Uh-huh. I mean, how, how does that how does that work? How does that progress? You want to explain it or do you want me to? Uh, yeah, go ahead. 
Okay. <laughs> methadone is a methadone is the common drug used for opioid treatment, and the reason it's used is because it's a slow release opioid, and so you, you can't really get high unless you do enormous amounts. Um, so it stays in your body about 24 hours, typically for a half life. So you get on it, you come in, you're high on heroin. We start you on a low dose of methadone. We gradually increase the methadone while you get off the heroin or other drugs. And then you stabilize at a period where you're not feeling sick anymore and you're not getting high. And you start to get your life back. That's it. And once you start to get your life back and you're stable, then we start tapering, slowly getting them off the drug. Because if you, if you go off quick, they're going to relapse. So you go off really slow because your body starts producing all those good chemicals again over time. But it takes literally a couple of years. Why, why do they relapse if they go off quick? Because they go into withdrawal and they're desperate. And you don't have the dopamine or anything rebuilt back into your brain. Yeah, yeah. You're desperate. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know how when you have a really bad flu, you just want to take NyQuil and go to bed? Except this is a horribly, horrible sickness where... You just want somebody to shoot you. It's really bad. So that's why we do it slowly. Uh, you're talking about something in the middle of the brain and the escapes that you have, eat it somehow and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and then it takes your brain up like it takes two years to get some animal and stuff after you sober up. Yeah. Is that just with this or is that with any drug? Um. Believe it or not, the most abused drug in America and the one that is the most destructive is legal, and that's alcohol. It's w there's way more deaths from alcohol than there are from opioids, but it's legal. Um, with alcohol, they can develop... White brain or liver cirrhosis? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we're working together with a client who has... Um, it's called Wernicke... Korsakoff syndrome and it means the brain gets to the point where your memory is gone you, I mean I can tell you see me tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock and they can't remember I told them that and they're, con they're confused this particular person got on a bus about three weeks ago to go somewhere and couldn't remember why he got on the bus or how to get home and slept outside in the cold because he couldn't find his way home I mean Alcohol damages every organ in your body, whereas opioids actually don't, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, when you think about it, you'd think opioids would be worse, but alcohol is actually the worst drug available. Yeah, but it does. they do, they do take time to recover, but a lot of it is psychological and uh, mental learning to reprocess using the prefrontal cortex rather than, on the brain thing, the limbic system, which is pleasure-oriented. Yeah. Charlene and Jamie. We're overtime, Jim. Are we okay? Okay. So I just want to say that it, it's a dual process. It's not just that you're dealing with the drug. It's that you're having the counseling along with right. taper down and all that. Exactly. So it's not just a one-pronged approach. you got to work through the trauma in order right. to actually you have recover. To find out why you so so I can, here, step over here so you can answer. Are you a different person now than you were yes. before? Yes. How are you different? Well, I'm not on drugs. Okay. <laughs> That's a good first step. 
Um, I, uh, it's, it's kind of, it's like you said, it took years to work through my own trauma. Um, I, when I came into recovery, I was, I was broken. I had no self-esteem. I had no self-confidence. I had no spirituality. I had nothing, really. Um, now that's entirely different. Um, I, I have, I'm confident in who I am as a person. My self-esteem is higher. It's not great, but it's higher. <laughs> um, my spirituality finally exists. Um, it's still something that I am working on, just like everything else. But I wouldn't have been able to get here without um, going to counseling and working in NA and celebrate recovery and all those things and creating. It's there's a counselor at the clinic that always says it takes a village, and I always told her I was like that's such a goofy saying, but it's true. Um, you can't recover unless you have a support system. It's just not possible. So. Okay, well, one more. It's outpatient. What we do is outpatient. Depending on where they're at in treatment, when they're new in treatment, we see them weekly. Um, once they're established and doing better, they don't need to be seen as often once they're stable and doing better. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a, a weird subject. My mom doesn't live here. She lives in Florida. Um, she was not overly helpful during the process. Uh, my dad died um, when I, right before I moved here, but um, he didn't really know or care what was going on, so no. Which is why I'm grateful for people like meeting Tim and, and the people that I've met in Colorado. Um, I've created my own family, so that family has been very helpful. Uh, my immediate family, no. Well, that's a good segue into, I mean, maybe you could wrap it up with this. Yes. Of course, you guys would be available informally to answer questions. Please sit with her. Okay. Ask your questions or ask me questions, either one. So, Tim, I guess the biggest question for us is what role can we play as a church, if any, in helping people who are going through recovery. And, uh, you know, we just talked about, you know, village, but maybe address that and then we'll, we'll wrap things um, And I want you to help me with this. The biggest thing is not only for the people in recovery, it's for people who are not in recovery yet <clears throat> because they're not ready for it yet. Um, the biggest thing you want to do is when they're trying to pull away from you, because they don't want to... That's what you do. You pull away from people. You need to be there to support them even in their worst moments so that they know there's somebody they can turn to when they're ready. Does that make sense? Yeah. Somebody that they can turn to when they're ready. Um, because if they feel totally abandoned, that's where suicide is a real issue. They, what's the point of living? Everybody hates me. I'm worthless. Yeah. Kill myself. Yeah. Should we sing a song? Just I, one I, verse? I, 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 You'll wrap it up. Go for it. Uh, Sloan, first of all, Sloan, thank you for, for sharing. I know that was that's not easy. And Imagine you coming up and sharing yeah, your past. Um, that wasn't easy. Thank you, though. That blessed us and that ministered to us. And uh, we're very appreciative that you're willing to do that. Um, 
And, and that for us as a church, you know, I mean, uh, boy, I'm getting, I think we're getting feedback. 